Hi, this is Elizabeth Bailey, and you're listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Jesus speaks about loving enemies, and he starts by correcting what was a common phrase that people threw around in their culture, in their day, in the first century AD. Look at verse 43 with me. People would say this, like your parents might teach you this, that you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And while God himself certainly hates sin, and God certainly hates evil, and God certainly hates those who are embodying these evil things on the world, God's people are actually never commanded in the Old Testament to actually hate another image bearer. So Jesus starts off by saying, you need to relate to people in a new way. I understand you live in a culture where war is not far away, where the Romans have conquered you and lots of bad things have happened throughout your history, but you need to relate that it's not just you're in and you're out sort of existence. I want to teach you a new way to live as my people. Look at verse 44 and 45 with me. Jesus says, but I say to you, this is God of the universe says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons, not of a certain tribe, not of a people that needs protection, needs to fight off everyone else and hate everyone who wrongs them, but you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. God explodes their little world into a much bigger world that you're sons of a father. So you're going to have to act differently than just hating your enemies. For he makes the sunrise, God makes the sunrise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus is arguing with us that God who made all has every right to judge us if that God sends rain on the just and the unjust, if that guy, God, is giving common grace to the people who are both good and evil, if that God can put up with the existence of people who don't worship him, if that God continues on in this world creating us with every right to judge us but can give grace and love to people, then how much more should we refrain from hate? Then how much more should we refrain from this anger or indifference towards others? How much more should we follow Jesus' direction to love? And how ugly does it make it when we failed to love? How ugly does it make it when we failed to love based on people's nationality or ethnicity? or class of economic status, or if we find them annoying, or uncool, or uncouth, to use a F. Scott Fitzgerald word. How often is our default indifference, which in some ways worse than hate, rather than love? This word is very encouraging to us in one way, that there's a new way to live. But no one can read this and say, oh, I've, yeah, I've loved everyone great. We've treated people who aren't even enemies as enemies. Just maybe on the way over here. Driving's tough. God is calling us to a new way to relate to people because we follow him. And here's the truth. It's one of our scripture memory verses. We were once enemies of God. And Romans 5.8 tells us this. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, you could edit in their enemies, Christ died for us. We take our sins so lightly, we wouldn't call ourselves enemies. 
But all sins is a rebellion towards God. It's picking another side. It's picking another team. It's saying, God, you and your ways are not good. I am king of the universe. No matter how pitiful or strange that is in actuality, God loved us when we were enemies and put that love into action by going to a cross for us and dying for our sins, rising from the dead, and now making a free offer of forgiveness to all who will follow him. So we as God's new people are called to a life of love, not to just the people we like, but to the people that we would be tempted to hate, the enemies that exist. If we are to follow Jesus' command and example in the gospel, we must love our enemies, not in theory, but in practice, because love is our call, and love needs a recipient. You can't just love alone. It needs an object, and more than an object, it needs a person. It needs to be placed somewhere in a relationship. We can't love and abstract. Jesus didn't abstractly die for people. Jesus didn't abstractly die for, for people in general. He died for you in specific. That his work is for you. It's not just out there in space. It's for people, people on earth, people he loves. And Jesus calls us far past our comfort zone. Look at verse 46 and 47. He says, don't stop where everyone has said love stops. Here's where everyone says love stops. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? If you love everyone who adores you, well, you're no better than a celebrity. You're collecting followers, not friends. If you just love everyone who likes your stuff on Instagram, that's a pretty shallow love. And he compares, do not even tax collectors do the same. To them, that was the worst person in their culture. It was someone who had chosen to betray the Jewish people and go with the Roman overlords to become their tax collector in the Hebrew language and usually cheat people out of money. People hated tax collectors and saying, hey, they at least love each other. They at least love people who love them. Jesus doubles down. He says, verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Brothers is shorthand for family, brothers and sisters. If you only love your family, that's pretty common here in Alabama. That the idea of who you love stops immediately at the borders of your house or maybe your grandparents' house or maybe your grandchildren, but there's a distinct line of people you care about and are comforted by and you're down for anything for them, but everyone else, eh, maybe if they help or profit me in some way. And Jesus is saying, do not even Gentiles do the same. Jewish people, he's talking to mostly in the crowd here. He's saying, hey, everyone loves their own family. I'm calling you to a new way. I'm calling you to a new responsibility. I'm calling you a new way to relate to everyone around you on the basis that you don't love people on the basis of your preferences anymore that you love people on the basis of my love? What if in the center of every relationship in your life, you could go yes or no, this relationship's based on the love of God? They don't even have to be a Christian on the other end of it. In fact, specifically, you are called to love people who don't believe or disbelieve or hate God on the basis that God loves you and loves them too. What if you went through your life and said, man, do I need a relationship in my life that's not based on the love of God? What if that was an audit to work through? I'm no longer just going to live my life by my preferences and what I like, but choosing to say everyone that God puts in my path is here to be loved as a person. 
Now, do we need boundaries in our life? Are there people who are unsafe? Are there people who are dangerous? Are there people who want to have a relationship with you that is unhealthy? Sure. Every relationship has some boundaries. We're all wearing clothes right now. Great boundary. Let's keep it that way, team. There are boundaries in any relationship, but that doesn't mean the love has stopped. I have a relationship with my wife that's specific, with my kids that's specific. I want to keep them safe at all times in every reasonable way in the environments they engage in. And even with difficult people, you can set up boundaries not to keep people away, but to stay in loving relationship with them where it works. Because usually we start just editing out every single hard person till we end up with people who just think and act just like us and we call, man, this is my community. And God's vision is much bigger than that. With people who don't think like you, who don't look like you, who don't agree with you, that you could be in loving relationship with more actual people, not hypothetical people. Because our temptation is to say, I hypothetically love this person so much instead of the actuality of saying, man, this might be harder than it looks, but I'm willing to do it because Jesus became a human and got dirty for me. Jesus' vision is so big that the center of our relationships becomes not our preferences, but the actual love of God. And his vision for the church, for Christian community, there is no Christian community apart from the church. We have other community in a wider sense, but the main one we're talking about is the theater of the local churches or churches in partnership with one another. The Christian community should be a theater of love because our relational God lives of all eternity in loving community. There has never been a single second in all of eternity, past or present, that God has been alone. God has been in community with himself, a loving, perfect, unity, diversity, harmony community for all of eternity. And that's why God is wild about seeing the people who bear his name be filled with the same. And you might say, how is that happening? There's only one God. Well, this is the magic and beauty and majesty of the Trinity that we see in the Bible, that there is only one God. We are mono or one theist. We worship one God, but he's revealed in the scripture in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit who have been loving each other perfectly for all of eternity, unity in their godness, diversity in their person. And their roles and responsibilities, they overlap and work together absolutely, one God. But it's out of that overflow of their loving community that the world is created. And you were created for community. It's inescapable. Genesis 2, we see Adam is made. He has all the animals on the face of the earth. And what's it say about Adam? It says, it is not good that he is alone. He's in relationship with God, and it's still not good that Adam's alone. And this is pre-sin. Pre-sin. So when you feel a loneliness, that loneliness is to push you towards other people. It's not to sit in. To sit in loneliness for a long enough time leads to evil. Your loneliness is a meant trigger in your makeup to go pursue more relationship in your life, both with God and others. See, God made the plan that we as image bearers of God were made for relationship, just like God's a relational God. And as we live in relationship, especially loving relationship with one another, where it's a marriage or a friendship or a whole local church, we actually show the image of God to the world more completely. 
Just one of us bears the image of God, but together it magnifies every loving relationship in your life, especially committed, dug-in relationships start to show this beauty of a God who's working in our life and everyone can see it. We see this happening, that Jesus, as he lives his ministry, basically with 12 men. It's a larger group, but also a small group, that he gives his life away to these men for three years. He invests in them and loves them. That is his plan. When we see the book of Acts, we see the church coming together to be a new people, and they form these communities and local churches everywhere they go. They can't help themselves. The local church could be defined like this. It's a people saved by Jesus and locally committed to loving one another, a community, under Jesus' lordship. To be in this community both means that you're redeemed by Jesus and that you're choosing to follow his lordship or his rule in your life as the good king he is. And that's his vision. And the point of this church, as you see in the definition, the point of a church is not community. Rather, the point is Jesus, his saving work and his ongoing lordship, his ongoing kingship in our life. When we obey Jesus' command, we actually get community. Community is the wonderful, beautiful byproduct of following Jesus' commands in our life. But too often the church is pitched as a community, but it doesn't have a power without Jesus to love our enemies, to love difficult people or even to make two nice people who are sinful stay in a relationship for a really long time. Marriage without Jesus, I think, would be miserable because my basis of forgiveness towards Elena or hers to me would be my good works. And when would I ever be good enough to deserve my wife's forgiveness? But if I can be forgiven by my wife on the basis of God's good works and I can humbly work through my issues and repent and apologize then I have every hope in the world for the rest of my marriage. And vice versa for Elena, vice versa for this whole church. The basis of your forgiveness towards another person is Jesus' work, not theirs and not yours. And that's when a community gets bigger and shines brighter and can last a hundred years. It's when Jesus is the center, community comes next. So I want to share two common pitfalls two things that will keep you from enjoying community. And I want to give us three steps we can take this week, we can take this month, we can take every day for the rest of our life. Sound good, guys? We went real big. We went super galaxy brain, trinity. Now we got to get our feet on the ground. Two pitfalls. If you want great community, you can't be the architect and you can't be apathetic. The architect thinks like this. Driven by idealism of what a Christian community could be, they tend to run over and miss the people who are actually in front of them. They tend to refuse the gifts and invitation God is giving them to pursue an ideal. And the famed pastor, spy writer, martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. Those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. Now, there's a good idealism that brings vision that moves to action. But when we miss the people that God's actually put in our life, when we miss the things that God's inviting to us in our actual life, we begin to actually hurt the very thing that God's building. We don't need an architect. I'm not the architect. God is the architect. 
God is building his church. God is building the relationships in your life. I had a friend named Jenna. It's a couple years ago. And Jenna took a beach trip with her family. She had a daughter, or has a daughter, the same age as Eloise. And Jenna went on a long beach trip with her husband and her daughter. And the thing about Jenna, they went to an isolated beach because she'd lost all of her hair. And she knew she was in the final weeks, maybe a month of her life. And sitting out on the beach with her young daughter and her husband, she returned and they had a great time to worship Jesus. She wanted to worship Jesus, so her body physically couldn't. And she said, God, we asked, what, what's God been teaching you? And she said, it was amazing. I still struggled with idealizing my daughter, even knowing I was down to weeks, maybe days to live. Growing frustrated that she wouldn't play or focus enough. Growing frustrated she couldn't grasp the moment of this was the very end of my life. And God kind of showed me, so am I, and how much I've lived my life with a grand idealism about all the things instead of loving what was actually there with the present moment we have. It was such a gift for her to share that and to start to think, maybe community isn't for me to fix everyone, but to cultivate what's actually there and to be cultivated in return giving grace to yourself and others for our shortcomings, our failures, seeing our sins, our great need for Jesus and his generous love is the thing that makes a church. It isn't that we get everything right, it's that we need a great Jesus. And in that, we need one another. The goal of a community is a slow, loving relationship, not to impress or perform, but to connect deeply. And we can't connect with people and impress people. We got to pick. And I bring that up a lot because it's so hard in our culture that says, impress me, impress me. Your worth is based on impressing me. And in Christ's community, we are just called to love, period. And forget about ourselves if we can for a while. The opposite error is apathy, which usually has two forms. There's the apathy that does nothing, doesn't show up, and never risk, and they get no return. It's the same of wishing to be in shape, but being allergic to working out. It's just not going to happen. If you never leave the couch, you're not going to connect with someone new. It's just part of the deal. And this person who has this form of apathy, they might find friends out of convenience, like you go to school together or you work together, and just as they find community, like they stumble upon it, as soon as that commonality leaves, they've lost community because it comes and it goes. Why were your friends friends in high school? Well, your parents live near each other. And if you didn't have anything else in common, they ceased to be your friends as you matured. And so we want to reject that apathy. And the second form of apathy looks a little different. It might hurt a little bit. But this is a form of apathy that has no tolerance for difficulty. And at the first sign of disappointment, the first sign of conflict, it tends to peace out. And I just want to invite you today, instead of grabbing an, uh, your sneakers the next time it seems like it's going to rain in a relationship, Instead of grabbing your running shoes the next time the, the sky gets cloudy of disillusionment or disappointment or anger at somebody, I'm just asking you to grab the umbrella of God's grace 
and draw near to that community. Because it's through conflict that you'll find depth. From depth, you'll put down roots. And one day those roots will produce beautiful spiritual fruits. But most of us do not go deep enough in our relationships to really have any fruit in them. And it's okay to have conflict if you're absolutely committed to loving the other person and learning to be secure in the love of Jesus. That will drive you so deep and one day build things so beautiful. We want to be a people that's growing in our hardiness and humility of the soul to do conflict well, forgiving easily and freely, knowing we've already committed to love the other party. So here's my three encouragements. They're super simple. One, if you want to build great community, start with friendship. It takes seven minutes of conversation before people feel comfortable. Seven. Most of us are rushing too fast to ever get a little deeper. So be patient and pursue friendship. It looks like this. Fill your week. Ask how much room do you have in your week to spend time with one older friend, one friend that you know, and one new friend. If that's too much for one week, then bring it down to one old friend one week, one new friend the next week. Prioritize in person as much as you can. And stop trying to impress. It doesn't have to be event. It can be every day. It's lunch. It's hanging out for a walk after the kids go to bed. It's just simple, boring stuff. I think we get in the way of ourselves by trying to make it awesome. And there are moments for awesome. It's fun to think about someone, prepare for someone. Our church, get gifts for the O'Neill family, think about things, throw things. That's awesome. But that can't be all the time. Or for most of us, that'll exhaust us. But just letting people have dinner with you, inviting them to have dinner with you, is such a gift. So build friendship. Number two, take a look at this big list. These are just some of the one another's in Scripture. There's actually about like 20 to 30 of these, depending how you, call, you count them. And the context of all these sorts of commands is the local church. There's no other context in the New Testament that you would be teaching and thinking and applying these. So if you are someone who, who's not a member here, I would encourage you to membership to start pursuing these because I don't think they're super possible apart from a committed long-term relationship. Serve one another doesn't mean a lot if it was just once, one time, someday. But it means a lot every week and in weekly rhythms. Bear with one another in love. It's going to be tough to bear anything if you don't know someone deeply. Speak and sing the words of God together. What a beautiful invitation from our Lord. Teach and challenge one another. Help each other grow. Do not give up meeting together, Hebrews 10. Be hospitable to one another, 1 Peter. Confess to one another. You're going to need a long-term committed relationship to start sharing your weaknesses and sins freely and eat and drink with one another. There could be many more, but one way to build community is to say, hey, I want to commit to the same things that others are committed to. I want to be a part of that life with them. So that's my second encouragement. My third and final encouragement towards community is verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies. When you sin, church, God doesn't cast you out. What if you were a person that didn't cast others out for their sin? 
What if you started to battle for love with people? May you need new boundaries? Sure. But what if you are willing to take some wounds, not talking life-devastating wounds, but willing to do the work and the wounds to continue to love people, to literally fight for it in the same way that God fights for us, the same way God never leaves us, the same way that God welcomes us home time and time again. You're going to look a lot more like Jesus as you get used to forgiving people and also get used to saying you're sorry. So let's be a people who says we're sorry and forgives easily because no one's really our enemy. And we're called to love. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.